read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in the 13th verse, and I'm going to read all the way to the 5th verse. We're going to spend the majority of our time and attention this morning on verse 15, 16, and 17. Now, up to this point, we've been walking through these two different letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to a baby church that he planted. And I encourage you, you can look back in Acts chapter 16, and you can find yourself there, and, and you will see that this is the, like the origin story of how the church in First and Second Thessalonians, the church of Thessalonica, came to be. And these letters were written to them after when Paul tells them that Jesus is Lord, as, as is a typical custom, people say, no, 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 I think this is Lord. I think I'm Lord. I think these other things are Lord. And a riot began. And that riot ran Paul out of town long before he was ready to leave this baby church. But God did something amazing and began to grow this church and to bless this church. And the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians aren't, aren't really like controversial letters, say like the, the, the letters that he writes to the church at Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Those letters are written to a church that has some, some serious ethical dilemmas. They're trying to figure out what it is that they believe, what it is that, and how it is that they practice, what it is that God has started in them. And you don't see that here. You also don't see him addressing any deep theological issues, say like the, the theological manifesto of what we call the, the epistle, the letter to the Romans, or even like the letter uh, to the Colossians. And these are to talk about the, the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ over all things. To, to begin to, like in, for instance in Galatians, to, to address some doctrinal errors that they were experiencing. But instead, we see in First and Second Thessalonians a general tone of encouragement. Basically like, well done. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank God for what he's begun in you and what he's doing in and through you. This is the kind of letter I would pray that someone like the Apostle Paul could write about our church in 10, 20, 30 years from now. No real big controversies or divisions. No massive ethical dilemmas. Just good job. Keep doing. Keep letting Jesus lead you. Keep letting the Spirit infiltrate all that you say and do. And my prayer is that this is the kind of thing that could be written to us. Now, this, the book of Second Thessalonians addresses three primary issues that they were facing. The first one we saw in chapter one was persecution. Some things were happening that were causing some people to have doubts. Maybe that they'd missed that Jesus had come back and they lost it. And so the second chapter is addressing what they had begun to believe falsely. Someone evidently had started some rumors or maybe written a false letter or maybe preached a sermon that was unhelpful. So much of these people were afraid that they had missed the return of Jesus. And Paul outlines for them in the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that, look, they're not going to be able to miss it when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, no one will miss it. He tells the Philippians, look, look, when Jesus comes back, every single tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will begin to bow before him as Lord. You're not going to miss it. Instead, take comfort in these things. And he begins something interesting. He, he teaches this church about the end of things. And I think, ultimately, this is meant to be an encouragement to us. Because what you believe about the end of things reveals what you believe about the present things. And where their comfort really was is exposed in the persecution and the false teaching that had surfaced. So beginning, let's read in verse 13 all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. 
Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Beginning in verse 13, he concludes the body of his letter in the same way he concluded the body of his letter in 1 Thessalonians, which is a call to prayer, to give thanks for these people, and then he turns to urge them to do some certain things. Now last week, we dug into verses 13 and 14 and some pretty controversial and important things that we see throughout the New Testament boiled down and exposed in chapter 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits or from the beginning to be saved. God chose to save you. God chose to do this. And they were beginning to experience some insecurity about the future and even the present. And so we, we saw last week that since God chose to save you, since God chose to set you apart by the Spirit, that's what that sanctification, the setting apart by the Holy Spirit, since God granted you faith in Him, then now stand firm. Be secure in your future. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of things to come. Don't be afraid of things happening now. Instead, know that you are secure in the hands of God. Now here's what I shared with you this last week. I kind of want to build on that and then land as the the turning point to what he says is our security is now the ground on which we stand from which we begin to say and do everything that we say and everything that we do. Now my goal here isn't to make you into a Calvinist. I know that's what some of you think. And if you weren't raised in the church and you don't know what that means, bless you. I'm dead serious. You're carrying a fresh sense to this text that when I tell you that God is doing something and he's the author of it, he's the perfecter of it, he's the finisher of it, that if, if, if you're not raised with the baggage of the church, you're like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. God chose me. He's the one who called me. And you'll experience that as very, very good news. 
We saw this, uh, I don't know, uh, we walked through this on a regular basis through the New Testament. I want to show you just a few places I saw last week, but, but even now, listen to the way Jesus talks about this. The sovereignty of God, the sovereign choosing and electing will of a glorious and gracious God and the responsibility of human beings. The Bible has no problem talking about both of them together, right? It's, it's easier for us to, to pick a side, have a faction, and say this one versus this one. The Bible doesn't do that. John 6, Jesus says it this way. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you still do not believe. For all that the Father gives me, hear that again? God chooses, God calls. All the people that God, it says all that the Father gives me will come to me. Did you catch that? Like there's this picture of God choosing and calling a people to themselves. And then when the people hear this and know this, they're like, yes, thank you. Do you know me? Why would you pick me? And out of, out of, out of just simply gratitude, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It says, whoever then comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but then raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 44, he picks up and says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. For it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. I shared you in depth the ways in which this began to change my own life as a teenager, but it began um, as a, out of angst and out of spite and with the completely wrong motives. And I was reading through the Bible as a teenager because I heard a bunch of pastors say, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And I was like, fine. I will. I will read the Bible, and I'm going to learn it better than you, and then I'm going to prove you wrong about your own book. That's what I was doing. And uh, not the best motive, but in the middle of that, as I was just being absolutely destroyed by, by repetitive and secret and habitual sin, I was like, what do I do? How, do I, how can I get over this? How can, I, how can I know that I am saved? How can I know that God really loves me? And I was stumbling through the book of Ephesians, and I read in the book of Ephesians that God actually has set apart for me good works, that in Christ... I have now every spiritual blessing. He's the one who's called me. He has set me apart for his good purposes. And as a person who was spending a lot of energy wandering from God, that, that was incredibly good news, right? That my future wasn't in my own foolish and rebellious hands, but my future was in the hands of a God that would never let me go. And I went to the people that I looked up to in our church, a leader in our church, and I said, you won't believe this. You will not believe this. All this time I've been like destroying my life. And I, I just read in Ephesians that he's not going to let me go. That God has predestined me for adoption. He's chosen to adopt me into his family. And he's never going to let me go. And that person goes, yeah, that's Calvinism. Like, I, don't, I don't know who this Calvin is. I mean, I immediately, all, the only Calvin I knew at that point was the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. And I, th I thought that's what he was talking about. And I was like, what are, you, are you saying that's, is this childish? What, did I miss something? 
I was like, I don't know who Calvin is. I don't know what you're talking about, but I just read in the Bible that God's not going to let me go. He's going to hold me. John 10 puts it this way. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I, I love that. Don't you like one of the best ways that I would say, uh, one of the best ways that I would say that God gives us an assurance and a peace is that like you couldn't unbelieve if you wanted to. Like you couldn't unhear Jesus if you wanted to. Like if right now you were like, I'm done. I am no longer going to trust and believe in Jesus. I'm out. You couldn't. You would try, but there would be in the back of your mind, uh, you could try to drown it out as best you can, but you know what this is like, right? Like, you're like, I've tried not to be a Christian. I've tried to run against it. I've tried, I've tried a, the angle of skepticism. I've tried to, to, to simply just drown out or, like, or, or overpower the arguments of Jesus intellectually. And this, this, yeah, and you still hear his voice, don't you? Even maybe through me. Run as far as you want, but my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They, even if they don't want to, they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on further. He says, like, even if it were possible, let's say you could overpower Jesus, united with the Father, he says, my Father who has given them to me. Do you hear that? Do you hear, the, do you hear this, this, this paradox, this mystery working? God's doing it, and yet we're responsible. God's choosing, and yet we're responding in faith. You, you get this? Like, the Bible has no problem talking about those things at the same time, and so therefore, neither do we. My Father, who has given them to me, it was greater than all. And man, th- maybe this is just for some of you out of John chapter 10 who are running from God and like, feel so far from God, and look what he says. No one, not even you, I know you're a snowflake and you're better than everyone else. Not even you can snatch them out of the Father's hand. My goal isn't that you would become a Calvinist. You would get t-shirts that say predestination in Greek on it. That's cool. Good for for you. Uh, My goal is the same goal that Paul has. That you would have comfort, security, and hope in the finished work of Christ. He calls them, beginning in verse 15, to stand firm in this hope. And you'll see here for the Thessalonians who were beginning to wonder if Jesus had already returned, if they were going to be abandoned by Jesus. The call to be constant and stable reflects one of the principal concerns of the apostles in their pastoral ministry to new Christians. One of the most important things that these apostles do is to encourage them, look, Jesus is not going to abandon you. Jesus is not going to leave you. If he's called you to life, to trust in him, it's eternal. And then I would argue, if that's the principal concern of the apostles, then I think even today it reflects one of the principal concerns for Christians today. And then most of you, when I meet with you, it usually starts with something like, work has caused this, right? Marriage has caused this. My family has caused this. And the end result is just this, this feeling of instability, right? Fear about the future. A resentment and regret about the past. This isn't my plan. This isn't the way I wanted this to pan out. And you'll see it. You feel it? It's that feeling of insecurity. It's that feeling of, of instability. That the world knocks you off your feet. So I want us to show here, like, the confidence we have in verse 13 and 14 is that God is doing this. 
God is doing this. God is called you. And it, it, this 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says it this way, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a good thing for you in this room. That means even, even for you to consider the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is, and to even consider the possibility that Jesus is worth listening to, learning from, and following, is a miracle, a spiritual miracle that only God can perform. To see Jesus as being who he says he is, is a spiritual work. You can't do it. You can't possibly do it. And that's a good thing, because even the fact that I'm talking about Jesus, and you're not furious and throwing tomatoes and chairs at me right now, is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, even talking about Jesus would seem repulsive and nauseating. And maybe for you that's what this is. But the fact that, again, I'm not a dare, the fact that no one's throwing anything at me is evidence. Maybe the Holy Spirit's doing something. Maybe this is real. Maybe God brought you to this place for this purpose so that you would hear this good news that God, in his mercy and, and infinite patience, wants you on your worst day. That was the day that God sent his son Jesus to take your place, to call you to new life in him. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. That is this good news. Good news that God would save us and choose us so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a glory that Jesus alone deserves, and in his mercy, he's decided to share that glory with you and with me. So, beginning in verse 15, so then, powerful transition words. If you're holding a Bible, I encourage you, if you want to, take out a pen and circle those two words. So then. It would be just therefore, but there's an added uh, a Greek, in the Greek, there's a qualifier. It's not just therefore. It's like, so then therefore. It's like, now that we've established this, now that we've established that God is doing something, God holds all the glory. He gives it to Jesus, and Jesus says, fine, I'll give it to all these people so that we share in this unmerited grace and favor and glory in Jesus Christ. God's doing this. Now, verse 15, so based on that, therefore, then, brothers, brothers and sisters, Stand firm. and Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Probably a reference to 1 Thessalonians. So then, those words are so important. Without those words that simply says to you, hey, you better stand firm. You better hold on to the traditions of the apostles. You better do it. And you better not mess it up. But oh, listen to the good news in those words. So then, based on what we know to be true about God and his electing mercy, the mercy, mind you, we saw last week that, that crushes our pride at first, but gives us immeasurable joy in times of sorrow and struggle, rebellion, and even suffering for the Thessalonians. Based on that, just stand firm in it. We talk about this on a regular basis. I want to show you where it's from. I want to make you into a Greek grammar nerd. If you're not a grammar nerd like me, just hang on for a second. We'll be right back, okay? Indulge the rest of us in the room that are, all right? Put your glasses up. I want you to see the New Testament makes a clear distinction between the imperatives, that is the do's and the don'ts, and the indicatives, that is the dones. 
For the sake of the gospel, so should we. I've got to teach you about moods real fast, grammar moods, and this ought to help you, I hope, in other spheres of life. So up to this point, did you catch that? They were indicative statements. An indicative move is a, a mood is a statement of fact or statement of reality. Declarative is maybe the way your, uh, your, your, your English grammar teacher taught you earlier on, right? It's a, it's a declarative. It's just a statement. Whereas you've got other moods, right? You've got interrogative, which is those verbs are a question. Like, will you go to this thing? It's not a statement that you will. It's a, it's a question, and you have to, you know, there has to be a response to it. Those verbs are interrogative. But then there's also a couple more. There's subjunctive, that this might happen, possibly. And then there's even, uh, there's a conditional verbs that like, if, then, this will happen. And then there's imperatives that are almost always second person. That is you or you guys or you all. English doesn't cover this really well. You people. And there's a command. Go do this thing. Do this thing. Do not do those things. And those are verbs in the imperative mood. They are commands. They are, they are statements that you should obey. Do this thing. Don't do that thing. It's a different kind of verb. You better do it. And if you'll notice, those verbs do not show up until after the so then. The do's and the don'ts, verse 15, stand firm, hold to the tradition. Those two verbs, the do's and the don'ts, only work based on the indicatives that happen in verse 13 and 14. Now we steal this from a grammar genius by the name of J. Gresham Machen. Uh, I encourage you, read more of him and and understand this, but this, this is so important, and I want you to see the gospel even in the structure and the grammar of this text. And you'll begin, I think if you learn this, if you, if you begin to identify this, you'll see it every place else in the Bible. The way we talk about this in gospel community is the difference between good advice, the do's and don'ts, things you ought to do, things you ought not do. Those are imperatives. You better do them. You better not do them. Versus the good news, which is the indicative mood. The statements, the declarative statements of things that are done. And don't miss the order and structure that we see modeled here. And again, when, when, when your eyes are open to this grammar nerdiness, I know, hang with me, hang with me. You're falling asleep, hang with me. When your eyes are open to this, you won't be able to unsee it. You'll see it everywhere in the New Testament. And every single place that an author in the New Testament tells you to do something or don't do something, it is always predicated upon the finished work of God and Jesus Christ. Every single time. And we think this is transformational. In fact, this is, there's something in here that might set most of you in this room free. Think of it this way. Christians do not think about things they should do until they have first thought about what Christ has done. Friend, don't put your faith in yourself. Don't put your faith in your faith. This is the part where, on a regular basis, if you're expecting me to say something that will build your self-esteem, I'm about to really disappoint you. I don't care about your self-esteem, and neither does the New Testament. I care about your God-esteem. I care about how highly you esteem Jesus. Because you can't fix what's broken in you. And that's why everywhere you go, things are awful. Everywhere you go, you get bored and it's lame 
And every single group of people don't worship you and love you and honor you. And you know why that is? Because you brought you there. And no one has lied to you, deceived you. No one has disappointed you, misled you more than you. And that's why now, if you're thinking, I'm gonna, my solution is over the rainbow. Once I get this job, once I graduate with this degree, once I get this relationship, or once I get out of this relationship, that's when it'll all be good. That's when it'll be fixed. Friend, you know what the problem is over the rainbow? You always take you with you. And all those issues, if they're left unreconciled, you'll drag along with you. Your biggest problem, you brought in the room, and it's you. But... Isn't it good to know that our faith now and in the future isn't resting in your selfish, childish hand? Isn't it good news to know I am not left to save myself? And that's what verse 13 and 14 tell us. God has chosen you. God has done this. The minute you stop believing this, I just want to ask you, like, did you die on the cross for all man's sin? No? Okay, stop. Give it up. And if Christ has, then we respond accordingly. Verse 15, so then, what you do is predicated upon what Christ has done. We do or don't do based solely on what Christ has done. And you wonder, well, how, how can I know? How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm a family member of, in God's household? You look at the cross. You look at the cross. How do I know? Look at the cross. It's the only ever-present reminder. It's the only thing that in, in suffering and in insecurity and failure and rebellion, we go, well, thank God there's Jesus. Thank God when it was left to Him, He didn't fail. We don't do a thing apart from what Christ has done. So don't miss that. There is, a, there is the gospel built into even the grammar of the New Testament. And you'll begin to see this. Once this kind of, kind of cracks into your brain, you'll realize this is everywhere. There's a do and a don't, and they're always predicated upon the done of Jesus. And we don't do any of those things unless we're thinking solely about what Christ has done. Here's the way I'll wrap this up and think on this particular point. Right? Let's say I bought you a house. I paid for the house. It's paid for. It's done. Okay? Here's a house. Live in the house. Now, based on the fact that that house is paid for, you should do some things, right? You should mow the lawn, right? You should pay the bills. You should take care of the house. But one thing you should never do is to try to send money to some bank to pay off that house. You get it? So, like, you, you should live in the house. You should enjoy the house. But one thing you should never try to do is to try to pay for the house. Because, first of all, that'd be absurd, but it would even undermine what's absolutely true about your standing in the house. Don't miss this. You cannot do what Jesus has done for you. I'll say this to you as much as I'll say it to me. Stop trying to be perfect. The only one, thinks, the only one who thinks you're succeeding is you. And all the miserable people around you know the one thing you're afraid to admit. Stop. Give it up. Instead, enjoy. Enjoy what Christ has purchased for you. Let everything that you do now be an overflow of the joy that happens when you know Jesus has paid it all. Not some of it, not a little bit of it, all of it. Now we respond.
Verse 15, so then, brothers, now the imperatives start. Two things, stand firm and hold the traditions. The first one is stand firm. Remain immovable. Place your foundation in this particular area. You get the picture of building something on something else, and that thing that's underneath it is what's the most, is the, is the most important thing. Stand firm. What am I standing firm in? Well, we just talked about this. God's chosen me. God's called me. God is sanctifying me. God has called me to believe the truth that he is who he says he is, and now that's good news, and we're going to obtain the glory of Christ. Stand in that. Do not miss that. Never budge from that. And so the second way he says that you're going to be fixed in this is that you're going to hold to the traditions that were taught by us. So stand firm, right? Think, think Psalm chapter 1, or the very first psalm, right? Blessed is the man who does not like sit in the seat of sinners or uh, stand in the way of scoffers or walk in the way of the wicked, but he will be like a tree rooted by streams of flowing waters that will bear fruit in its season, right? There's this picture of while, the, while everyone wants to tell you to go and to do, to accomplish, to succeed, the Bible says, stop, root yourself in a life-giving source and be fruitful there. Be like a tree. Be rooted in the source that is the finished work of Christ. Second thing, he says, hold to the traditions. Now, that's a word people get stumble, stumble over because it's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament. It simply means literally things handed down. Colossians 2 talks about this, that, and it talks about the negative way we would understand traditions, but then Acts chapter 2 gives us the positive way we would understand that which is handed down. So verse 8, we read this usually in baptism in Colossians chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. You say that word? So he's like, beware of traditions that don't have their origins in God's grace and his work in Jesus Christ. Like if it's not handed down to you by the apostles, if it's not part of the Gospels, then just please be wary. You can borrow those things, but you have to give them back. So he says, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to what? There's human tradition over here, Paul tells the Colossians, and then there evidently is the things according to Christ. Human, man-made traditions, traditions that go all the way back to Christ. Verse 9, for in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is why his traditions are better. He's got the authority. The people who made these other traditions don't. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made not, or excuse me, made without hands. So something intimate was done to you, but it was not done with hands. It was something so intimate and it was the putting off of not skin, but the putting off of the body of the flesh, the worldliness, by the circumcision of Christ. If that creeps you out, if that's kind of weird to talk about, again, if that confuses you, talk to one of your gospel community leaders. They'd love to tell you about all what this means. But if that kind of creeps you out, you get the point. Like, that's weird. That's, that's kind of intimate. The thing that Jesus is doing, that's really intimate. That kind of makes me uncomfortable. Exactly. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working, not of ourselves, but of God, who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. So don't be captive to human traditions, but instead hold tightly to traditions that are in line with Christ-likeness, the traditions he started even with the apostles. This means that more than anything else, 
we want to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, I've shared this with uh, other church planters that I've coached and have learned from a mentor of mine. We call it the bat. And every church from the leadership on down should have a bat. And that bat should be to protect the vision and mission of the church. Because everybody wants to hijack the mission and vision of Christ's church for their own gain, own glory, own attention, own success. Everybody. And we, with a proverbial bat, fight to keep the gospel at the center. And the minute anything comes out, we will sound, the, the words we talk, we will sound very stubborn, we will frustrate you, we will sound adversarial, and it's simply because we just know putting our faith in, standing firm in anything other than the finished work of Christ is a, a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for despair, it's a recipe for sadness, and right now, if you come into the room with fear, anxiety, stress, all these things, if you're deeply depressed and in a dark place, underneath all of those things, underneath all of those things, you've placed your footing on something that can't hold you up. And we regularly say, stop. Come stand in the finished work of Christ. He can hold you. Your job can't. Your boss can't. Your spouse can't. Your boyfriend or girlfriend or your singleness can't. It can't hold you, but Christ can. Stand firm in it. Hold fast to it. And throw off every single thing that tells you different. And enforce it with a bat. That's why I mentioned in verse or the first few verses of chapter 3, there is an evil one that's coming after you. The Lord is faithful. He's going to deliver us from the evil one, but man, the evil one is going to come as hard as he can at you to rob you of this foundation, to rob you of this thing handed down from the apostles. So this means that the man-made traditions are ones that we can borrow, but we have to give them back. I always give these examples like this building. This building is a man-made tradition. The New Testament does not talk about churches owning property. It's because mainly the government was trying to kill them publicly, right? That, that they, didn't, they couldn't own property. And so they lived underground. Now that they're not, we can own property. But the minute that the property, the man-made tradition, not in the scripture, becomes more important than our sure footing in Christ and the thing held, held, that we hold fast to, handed to us by the apostles, we've, we're off the rails. And this is important because we really, we human beings really like to do things our ways. We love traditions. We love them. Some of you, you haven't even been attending this church for very long and you sit in the same seat every time. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm looking down. <laughs> we love traditions. We find comfort in that control we have over all these things. We love man-made traditions. My favorite example of this in the history of the church, uh, a couple of centuries ago, Christians would get together and worship, and then they would, start, uh, they would start using certain things that made a lot of people angry. And they started using instruments to celebrate Jesus in song, right? Think Ephesians, Colossians, Psalms hymns, spiritual songs. They started singing, and they started bringing instruments along, and they brought in one of them that all these Christians, they wrote extensively, and I encourage you to look at this, they wrote extensively about this. This instrument is so gaudy, it's so worldly, it's so pagan, and it was called a pipe organ. And over time, that tradition became acceptable. And a few centuries later, those same arguments were made about its replacement. And so here's what I would just encourage you. We have traditions. You can play, look, we can worship with, we can worship with drums, we can worship with 
you know, under a tree somewhere. We can worship with pipe organs. Those are simply man-made traditions we can borrow, but by definition, borrowing means you have to give them back. So use the organ, use the guitar. Look, three out of four songs on iTunes are R&B and hip-hop. That means our children will gather together in Jesus' name and worship probably with like some turntables and a microphone. I'm not kidding, I'm not, again, this is, this is painfully obvious. If you think that's not true, come talk to me. I'll teach you a little about history and its cyclical nature, okay? And you will have to let go of your traditions. And you'll feel uncomfortable, like, they're rapping? They're rapping this hymn? How sacrilegious is this? It's, I'm just, bra- it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But please, don't be loyal to those man-made traditions. The finished work of Christ can be brought to the fore. We can draw attention to these things, all we possibly want, but it cannot be replaced. I share this with you on a regular basis. If you go into a good steak place, I mean a good steak place, and you order a nice big medium rare, again, I apologize if you're a vegan in the room, it's up. Imagine going to an awesome organic non-GMO tomato farm, Right? right? That's how I feel about steak. But if I walk into this steak place, and if it's a good steak place, they put the steak on the table, and the last thing they will ask me is something like, would you like some steak sauce? And I'm like, no, put it on the plate. Let's name it, thank Jesus for it, and enjoy it. Get everything out of the way. We do not want to put any ornaments on this beautiful thing. We just want to enjoy it in its purest possible form. So also, We stand firm in the finished work of Christ. We don't want anything in between us and it. We hold tightly to the traditions that Jesus hands down. We saw this in Acts chapter 2. These traditions in a positive light. Verse 42, And they, that is the first Christians, devoted themselves to four different things. First one's the most important for us. The apostles' teaching. So they had traditions they were building, but they were built around the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every single soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And so our traditions are these. We get together, we like to eat, the Bible says so, but we also break bread in remembrance of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood for our sins. We pray together as we ask God to do things that we could never do ourselves. We have fellowship with one another, like deep quantania, the kind of community that exposes the thing you want to hide, not, for your, not to humiliate you, but to offer you a deeper joy. And that first one is the most important. The tradition we have is the apostles' teaching. So he says, how do you stand firm? You hold tightly to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word, that is something taught by the apostles that we have recorded in the New Testament or the Gospels, or by our letter. This is why we read those letters, by the way. This is why we regularly, 2,000 years later, read letters somebody else's mail. Why? Because he says, look, hold to these traditions, and you'll see them in our correspondence. Verse 16, now. Again, if you want to write in your your Bible, do it. Circle that word, now. Again, it's another turning point. Christ has finished the work, so then stand in it, hold tightly to it, and nothing else now. And there's a prayer that he wants to see happen when these people are holding fast and standing firmly in the finished work of Christ. This is what Paul hopes will happen. This is what I hope will happen with us. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God our Father, the union of Christ and the Father, God and Jesus, the divinity of Christ being shaped together, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope 
through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now, there's a sequence going on here, and I want to keep circling. Now, verse 16, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, this is a, now it's a, an aside, who is Jesus? He's the one who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. Circle some of these transition words. Through. How did he give us hope and comfort? He gave it to us through grace. Unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You can't brag about it. Now that hurts at first, but it's really good news when you start ruining it. You wish you could brag about being a Christian. I wish I could brag about being awesome in Christ, but I can't. And that's actually a good thing because the, di- the days that I'm not awesome, namely every possible day, are the days that I get to glory in Christ. And I'm not hindered in my joy. I'm not hindered in my comfort and hope because he's freely poured it out for me. He's done it through grace. That is, means you didn't earn it. You can't brag about it. Through grace, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself stop, beginning in verse 17. What, what does he want to happen? He wants Jesus Christ to give them comfort, comfort their hearts, and establish them in every good work. That word, the, the verbs there, they're participles, comfort and establish, and they both qualify the thing that he wants to see happen to their hearts. Comfort, that is like an absence of strife, but then establish them, like as an establishment. So this is fun. Um, the word establish there is the Greek word sterizo. It's where we get the word steroid. And so I want your hearts to be on a Jesus comfort steroid. I want you to be like jacked up. And forget all the awful side effects of steroids for just a moment. Imagine they're really a good thing. I want you to be jacked. I want you to have, I don't know, roid rage with the comfort of Christ. I want the finished work of Christ to mess you up in a way that nothing, nothing can rob the comfort that Christ gives you. I want your hearts to be comforted and established, built up. Then you can circle that word in. Where will we see the comfort that's in our heart, the strength of the gospel in our hearts? You'll see it in every good work and word. Connect the dots. Christ has done something. God has accomplished it. When our eyes are open to it, we stand firm in it, we hold fast to it. And the overflow of that is that we begin to experience comfort and hope. Well, what about things that are awful? Notice that, that, that what Paul wished for them wasn't that the persecution would stop. Right? This is where, if you're uncomfortable, I'm tempted to go like, man, I hope that stops. But Paul doesn't do that. He does not say, man, I hope the persecution stops. He's like, I hope you have an eternal comfort that cannot be robbed even when people are being killed. When they split your family apart and they publicly murder all the people you love, I hope you still have a finished comfort in Christ, a hope that Jesus will make this right. It's unmerited. It's un- we haven't earned it. And that will overflow into a deep comfort that will permeate, don't miss the last two words here, your work and your word, everything you do, Everything you say. Connect the dots. This means that the life of Christ, following and being in Christ, Christians in every single thing they do and every single thing they say ought to be an overflow of the eternal comfort, the irreversible and irrevocable hope that God has granted us freely to receive in Christ. It's really interesting because he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on every work and word, but we do. We do. 
And what are we called to? We're called to stand firm in the finished work of Christ. It's handed down from the apostles and then find deep comfort in Christ that overflows to all that we do and all that we say. Listen, on a regular basis, this is the point where you, where you are, are hoping that I would tell you what you ought to do and what you ought to say. And you've got a big decision. You've got a big decision. Huge decision in front of you. You know how I know? Because you're a human. And everything's huge for us, right? We're Americans, so everything's overstated. You have a huge deal in front of you right now. Maybe, maybe like a, what class should I take? What degree should I pursue? Should I go back to school? Who should I date? Should I date? Who should I marry? Should I stay married? What job should I take? Where should I live? And you have tons of questions about what you ought to do and what you ought to say. Tons of them. I want to encourage you. It may not feel like encouragement. God doesn't care about what you do or say. God doesn't care. His will for you is where you stand and what you hold on to. And if your source of comfort and hope isn't firmly in the finished work of Christ, then friend, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who you date or marry. You'll mess all of them up. You'll drag your idolatrous discomfort into that thing and you'll strangle it, hoping it will make you comfortable. And you'll wonder, spouse, why don't you give me comfort? Job, boss, why won't you give me comfort? Friends, why won't you worship me and give me comfort? And friend, I want you to see this because they can't. They cannot give you what Christ alone can give you. They don't have the power. They don't have the budget. But Jesus does, and he has. So therefore, we hold tightly to this, we stand firmly in this, and then let that determine our decisions about what we say and what we do. This means that Christians, like, you you get together and we want to talk, what do I do, what do I say? Please, resist the temptation to act like a pagan and make it about what you do and what you say. I want to encourage you, this is a place where I'm going to be intentionally adversarial because we're defined by what Christ has done, not by what we do. The pillars of our faith. The pillars of our faith are not things that we ought to do. Right? Like taking a, for example, taking a pilgrimage to Mecca, or to pray, or to give. Right? The the pillars of our faith are not things that we ought to do. And if they are for you, you're a functional Muslim. There's a radically different turn of events that the gospel exposes us to The pillar of our faith is the finished work of Jesus. And it is the sure foundation. It is the cornerstone. Upon this rock you can maybe be offended, but you can build everything upon it and experience comfort, hope, and then every good work, every good word. Ever wonder why you say dumb things and awful things, hurtful things, selfish things? I do. You know why? Those moments awfulness comes out of me. I'm not finding comfort in Christ. I'm trying to get it some other means. You ever wonder why you do awful things and rebel? It's because you're not finding your comfort and hope in Christ alone. And it will flow into everything you do and everything you say. And friend, when you begin to be aware of this and share this, the only person who will be surprised by it is you. The rest of us have been watching this the whole time. I want you to have deep comfort. I want you to have unshakable comfort. One of the ways I think this is applied, and I'll kind of land on this little side note before we land this plane, is uh, one of the places I've seen this, even the most recent days, um, 
If you want to make people mad, I share this on a regular basis. If you want to make people mad in America right now, you attack the idol of parenting. You tell people how to parent their kids, it's sure to make them angry. So here I go. There's an overwhelming amount of data that shows how people raised in Christian backgrounds, once they're free to do their own thing, choose colleges or whatever, and then abandon the faith. And for some of you, I know you experienced that. Maybe this is like, this is your step back towards who Christ is. But it's very common. I mean, incredibly common. And I wonder, I wonder if when young people who, again, they're adults at this point, let's not call them kids, when they step out into the world and experience the comfort and pleasure of the world, I wonder if the reason why that seems so appetizing for them is because they've never had parents that had true comfort in Christ. I meet with college students on a regular basis, and they like to pick their college based on what? What school that can get a good job and make the most money? Who do you think taught them that? Who do you think taught them to find their comfort in money, status, achievement, career? And I just wonder, maybe... Maybe if not for us, but at least for our children, because there's the cool thing. Next door, there's some people with a bunch of kids, and there's no babysitting going on. None. Right? So if your kid gets hurt, we apologize. We're not, we're not babysitting. We're trying to teach them the difference between good moral people and people transformed by the gospel. And if your hope for your children is just that they would behave and obey, I promise you, that is an overflow of your lack of comfort and confidence in Christ. But if your greatest hope for your children is that they would even on the worst day have comfort in the finished work of Christ, now we're on the same team. And that's why we don't babysit. We don't want to teach them the do's and don'ts. We want to teach them about what God has done in Christ. Okay? So I wonder what it would begin to look like if the kids next door and even us, I wonder what it would look like even as our children are shot out of our homes into the world if they were taught and trained by adults or grown-ups or parents or role models who found their comfort in Christ and Christ alone. That scary atheist professor gets demonized on bad Christian movies. You know what I'm talking about. Like he's the devil. You know, he's no match. His intellectual arguments are no match for a person who has irrevocable hope and comfort in Christ. Like, I like what you're saying. It seems smart, but you seem miserable. (laughs) I mean, I could trade my thoughts and beliefs for your misery, but man, this hope and comfort in Christ is irrevocable. I'm going to keep it. Thank you. Have you considered the joy? Have you considered the contagious joy of Christ? I know it's absurd. I know I don't have a good argument for how awesome it is. And that's what makes it amazing. That's what makes it a work of God that he gets the glory for and not us. We tell kids, do this and say this. I wonder if we started to teach them comfort in Christ, what would happen? You see, we're called to stand firm in the finished work of Christ, handed down from the apostles, and then find a deep comfort, oh, a deep comfort in Christ that overflows to all that we do and that we say. I talked about children. That's just one area, right? That's just one avenue, isn't it? I mean, there's a million more. The comfort of Christ would overflow to the way you work, serve, love, care. I mean, it's everywhere. I just pick one place where we're really getting killed as Christians. I wonder if the overflow of our hearts is the comfort of Christ, what we would do and what we would say. But here's where I'll land. 
For some of you in this morning, like you, you come here, and I talk about comfort and hope, and that's like talking about a foreign country to you. Because you, this last week <laughs> was, was the most hopeless, uncomfortable thing you've probably been through. Maybe this last year or month. I mean, I, I, join the club. And I want to encourage you, that feeling of brokenness, that feeling of disappointment, that feeling of lostness, of not getting the joy from your marriage, relationships, job, you name it, status, achievement, that feeling of hopelessness that you have can be remedied by looking away from those things and looking to the hope that Christ freely offers to you and to I, to me as a free gift. Please don't, this is the hardest part of my job, I can only tell you about it, please don't carry that burden of hopelessness out of here. Not while Christ is offering freely comfort and peace forever and ever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness towards us. I thank you for your, the comfort and peace that you offer to your people freely, not because we've earned it, but because you are incredibly merciful. If there's someone in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves a Christian, I, I'm thankful. so thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for bringing them here. Uh, may the time that they spend with us be marked by love and care, concern, compassion. May they experience hospitality. Uh, if there's someone in this room, they're not a believer, not a Christian, would they, would they feel welcomed the way that you've welcomed us in Christ today? But even now, would you begin to pry open their imagination? Would they begin to contemplate the probability that you are who you say you are, that you've done what you said you came to do, and now the finished work, the spoils of this victory are freely available to all of us who see it and receive it, trust it and believe it. And it seems absurd. It seems illogical. It seems crazy that we would have comfort and hope in times of tragedy and suffering. Oh, would you grant us a comfort and hope in Christ that can never be taken away? Maybe for the rest of us who would call ourselves Christians, we've just regularly run to false hopes. We've regularly built things and structures on false and shaky foundations. Would we even today recognize them for what they are, confess them for what they are, a rebellion against the good and perfect gift you've granted to us in Christ? May we turn from them, repent of that, and then receive the the washing overflow of your grace and mercy towards us in Christ. May we experience it as comfort. May we experience it as hope. May our hearts be established in this, holding firm to this, and it overflows to every single good word and every single good work we could imagine. We ask all these things, a miraculous thing to ask for, a bold and courageous, absurd thing to ask for. We ask for all of them freely in Jesus. Amen.